everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. When Axon founder and CEO Rick Smith educates the crew about taser technology, he lays down the basic ground rules first. Avoid eyeballs, genitals, and throat, which is probably a good rule of thumb for a lot of things. But in this episode, it's not all about the less lethal tool used by nearly every police department in the nation. It's also about the future of Axon. Its core principle is to stop human threats without killing the suspect. Enter Rick's new book titled End of Killing. Before you take a political and ethical stance on the issue, which, being a police officer myself, having tased people successfully and unsuccessfully, give this episode a listen. You may find yourself surprised, as I was, at the motivation and practicality of this visionary guest. You also won't be surprised that John, Luke, and Tex take this highbrow discussion as an opportunity to debrief movies whose premises include futuristic crime fighting. Poor Rick humors the bros and makes them a taser offer they can't refuse. Here it is, episode 321. It's that time again to ring forth the rhythm and the rhyme. Yeah, that's the, uh, is that, who is that? Uh, I'll have to think about that, actually, who says that in the song. It's about that time to bring forth the rhythm and the rhyme. I could Google that, but I'm choosing not I to. I think it's Vanilla Ice. Is it? You now we got to inter- Google. Now, yeah, Google. Google that. Internet it's time emergency. to bring forth the, the rhythm, rhythm and the rhyme. And what that means for you, Power Athlete Nation, is another episode of the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Conditioning. Ing. Ing. And ladies and gentlemen. I didn't get an ing out of that guy. Ing. He kind of like, he like heavily whispered it like, <laughs> ing. It was kind of creepy, like somebody that would have a strange mustache. Mm. Mm. Yes. Oh, no, that was actually my mustache rubbing it. It's the microphone. Yes. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> that kind of reminds me of when I would be wearing a puffy jacket, and Callie would be like, stop wearing a puffy jacket during the podcast. It wasn't just Callie. It was everybody. Uh, <laughs> and be, that, that was literally <laughs> on the air. We would tell you, stop There's wearing John's, that jacket. There's John's jacket. Speaking of John, John is the featured guest of today's oh, show. Thank you. Thanks, I, I, I'm for one of your hosts. John. I'm Luke. I'm Tex. And if, gosh, if you are just one of those ladies out there listening to Tex's mustache rub on the microphone, and you're like, I want to see this caterpillar on his top lip. Did you know that the premier podcast in strength and conditioning ing ing is now on YouTube for your viewing ing ing pleasure, right? Wait, wait, why, why, why are we inging on a viewing? Cause viewing. No, ing. we only ing on strength and conditioning ing ing. <laughs> and the worst part about it is now whenever like I heard Luke on the phone and he was like, "Hey, we're a global strength and conditioning." And I was like, "Ing." I'm like, "Oh god." Now now it's like Pavlov's dog. Yeah, it's happening. It's happening. Ing. All right. All right. Kind of like, All right. So if you want like Premier Penguin, uh penguin, ing. Ing. Oh, ing. 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 We'll get to the bottom of that. Listen, Listen, Penguin, your identity has been found. We, we choose not to you. announce it, but you know who you are. Yeah. And so do we. We know. So, ladies and gentlemen, that's right. Go to YouTube and search Power Athlete. I wonder if, I think our URL oh, yeah. is like a long-ass bunch of numbers. So you'll have to figure it out. I have faith in you all. If you yeah. go to YouTube and YouTube search Power, Power Athlete. Athlete Radio, you will find all the, the premier episodes. podcast of strength and conditioning. Ing. Ing. That's right. Uh, let's see. Should we get onto the oh, show? Oh, it wasn't Vanilla Ice. It's Marky Mark. Oh, even better. Uh, Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, intern. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate that. 
Now, what else do we want to talk about, Tex? Well, there's July a, is the Power Athlete Symposium. Not in July. Oh, in July. Well, we have Fourth of July. No, that's already gone. This is July 26th. Ladies and gentlemen, that means that we are seven, eight to nine, ten. Carry the two. Five months. Less than five months away <laughs> from the premier uh, symposium in, in Austin. In strength and conditioning. No, not yet. In Austin. In December. December. In strength and conditioning. Or does that have to come earlier? Well, I mean, it really is the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. But what about the premier what about symposium? The, what about the symposium? Oh, well, that too. Yeah. In strength and conditioning. In, in, in. Ing. And ladies and gentlemen, it is out here, Austin, Texas, right in the heart of downtown Austin. The venue is 800 Congress Avenue. It is epic venue for the Wade's Army, not so silent auction, and our kickoff speaker and our kickoff talk to me, Johnny. It's going to be an epic time. Then we move it over to East Austin Athletic Center, which is right just east of Austin. It's all within super easy Ubers, and we have two days of practicals, some epic, epic speakers in the pipeline keep your eyes peeled go to events.powerathletehq.com slash symposium that's where all the information you're ever going to want to hear about that's where it's all going to be and you only have a couple days left of the early bird special and that is hey spoiler alert so we kind of record these before the release date i think you should know that by now no this isn't live Oh, wait. I mean, this is live. And as of right now, I can neither confirm nor deny if the early bird tickets are sold out. So that could be a problem for you as well. But if early bird tickets are sold out, don't worry. You have regular access. Everybody this year at the symposium gets to participate in the practicals, which is unlike the prior years. Yep. It's going to be be amazing. It's like drinking from a fire hose. That's right, Repeatedly. So don't hesitate. Don't wait. Get to events.powerathletehq.com slash symposium to get your tickets now. Anything else that we want to talk about? No. No? It's time for the shocker. Time (laughs) for the shocker. The shocker is not just... That's what I think would be a better name than Taser. No, that's Rick Smith's nickname. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Big Papa Shocker. Big Papa Shock. (laughs) Big Papa Shocker is what his handle is on on social media. So It it is now. Our guest is Rick Smith, who's CEO of Axon. And his, their mission, see, he's the guy, he didn't found, he brought to market the current Taser. Right, because it sounds like well, it, it sounds was, like he knew a dude that kind of knew a dude, yeah, that had one, and then they reverse engineered it, kind of like this movie called Paycheck, mm-hmm. a f- amazing film. But mm-hmm. founder of Taser International, the company, and we're going to learn all about non-lethal approaches to de-escalating threats, and I think it's pretty cool thought process with the onset, like where we're at with technology and robotics and. AI. So we're going to hear and about what, yeah, what Rick's got to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, super cool dude dialing in from an amazing library in the oh, West yeah, Wing's uh, back cave. Yeah, no, he he definitely is living in Wayne Manor. Yes. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's just get on with the show. How about it, Rick Smith? Let's do, do it. it, Rick. Hey, man. Uh, so we're we're rolling, we're rocking and rolling here, man. So thanks for jumping on the show, Power Athlete Radio, which is the premier podcast in strength and conditioning, Ping. as you may or may not be aware, but. Um, Rick, why don't you give our listeners a little bit of background on your company, the technology you've come up with, and kind of your your mission here? Yep. So uh, I just wrote a book called The End of Killing that lays out our long-term mission, which is really to make the bullet obsolete, Uh, which when I first say that, people look at me like I'm a little bit crazy in today's day and age. Uh, So let me give you the backstory. In the early 1990s, two of my high school football teammates were shot and killed 
in a road rage incident, basically an altercation on the street that spun out of control. And the guy who killed them was not, you know, a serial killer or some sort of thug gangster. He was a businessman who had a gun and got himself into a bad situation that spun out of control. He ended up taking two lives and now is spending his life in prison. So for me, I was living in Europe when this happened in graduate school. And I had this realization that, well, wait a minute, like firing bullets at people, that's like a medieval technology. I mean, bullets have been around for hundreds of years. Why have we not developed better technology so that somebody who wants to protect themselves doesn't have to make the decision to kill somebody else in order to do it? And so here I am 26 years later, uh, started a company with a former NASA scientist who'd created a technology called Taser. The basic idea is to use electrical energy instead of shrapnel to try to stop people. And uh, we made pretty good progress. We're used by almost every police agency in the English-speaking world. Um, but the next step for us is to go from being sort of a second-class weapon where the firearm is still sort of the premier in terms of effectiveness and reliability, but they've had a couple hundred year head start on us. We see the opportunity over the next 10 years is to catch up to the point where if we do our job right, if you had, if you had Captain Kirk's phaser, like you wouldn't need a traditional pistol anymore. Uh, so to me, that sort of the punchline is I think we kill people today when we lack the technology to avoid doing it. And that means there's just some work, some inventing work to do to get the tech good enough that we can bring an end to this idea of, you know, having to kill each other. Are you going to give the bad guys tasers too? Uh, you know, that's a really good question. Um, we'd love to see everybody de-escalate, uh, even the bad guys. You know, if somebody's going to take my wallet, I'd prefer they assault me with a taser than with a gun. Yeah. Uh, you know? Yeah. I mean, no, it makes a good chance. I'm, I'm just wondering in law enforcement, uh, if somebody, you know, had a gun and I had a taser, I would feel like I was a little outmatched. So I'm just yeah, wondering how and, that goes down. And that, that's where this gets really interesting. So part of the reason I wrote the book was to start the conversation now, because I think we're five to 10 years away. Um, and when you first say this, you know, most of my police customers would say, look, Rick, you never take a taser to a gunfight. And I'd say, well, that's true today. However, what if the taser actually of the future, or let's call it again, Kirk's phaser, if you actually had a non-lethal weapon that was faster and more reliable, then what would you take if you're going into a gunfight? And it gets into some really interesting philosophy where some people might say, well, I want the deterrence of something that's going to kill the guy if they're going to threaten to kill me. However, even if that's slower and less effective, as it turns out, you know, what we see in the movies is not real life. When people get shot in real life, they usually don't fall down immediately. It takes a while, unless you hit somebody in the head, uh, it actually takes a while for them to bleed out. And so you might even see like FBI statistics show, if you shoot somebody in the heart, you get a kill shot for the next 14 seconds, they can still shoot back until their brain runs out of oxygen. Talking like a nine mil or like, a, you know, because if you get shot with a 45, you got a hole in you pretty big. That'll knock you down. So I'm wondering, like, I mean, most of the and you know, this most of the police agencies are using what, like nine mil. I think uh, even the FBI went from like a 40 to a nine mil. And um, I mean, not that many people carry 45s, which is always surprising to me. And I mean, they issued nine mil to uh, uh, to soldiers as well. I'm like, man, like with a 45, you, you know, I mean, one shot me. But I guess it's also, well, too, if you shoot somebody with a 45, it's going to kill them. At least with a nine. Like, I think sometimes with a nine mil, like you can shoot somebody 10 times. And, and, yeah, it's almost nine, non-lethal. <laughs> My dad was a defense attorney in L.A. and had a client who uh, 
uh, shot his girlfriend nine times with a nine mil and she crawled and was able to call 911. The police came and she identified him from the gurney. So, wow. I mean, well, yeah, certainly there's different levels of effect. Uh, I think the point of the FBI study, and I was, this was like 20 years ago, was that regardless whether it's a 45 or a 9 mil, if you blow out the heart, they can still, their brain can function for a while. Now, with a 45, the physical impact may also knock them down, which is going to you know, slow them down. But the, the point is that in general, it's not, bullets aren't as magical as we might think at first. It's not like I shoot you, I hit you, and it's over. Um, so there's actually an opportunity. One of the advantages of electricity is actually if you do get a good connection to the body, its effect can be immediate. Hmm. The challenge is today, uh, the reliability of getting that electrical connection is challenging. You've got to fire two darts, got to hit them with both, got to get it through the clothing. So uh, this in the book, that's why I want to talk about it now. But look, there are these limitations where today you wouldn't, but over time, we're going to see non-lethals come up, come up the power curve. And your first line in the book is killing is a technology problem. And you introduce some some thesis to this. Can you start to dive into that and explain kind of your thought process for establishing these ideas first chapter? Yeah. 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 So um, let me start with a narrow area, and that's police work, because I think it's clearest here. Law enforcement officers are not licensed executioners. They are not out legally authorized to hand out death sentences. Uh, regardless of what some critics may, you know, paint negatively about police. When they use lethal force, it is purely for the purpose of stopping the threat, meaning they have no intention of killing you. Their intention is to stop you if you're a threat. Now, today, that typically means the two go hand in hand. Lethal force stops you by killing you. Uh, but if we can start to pull those away, and I've been having some super interesting conversations with police, as you can imagine, because they have a lot of concerns about this too, which is why I wanted to have the conversation years before the technology be ready, uh, where they think, it, it, you know, it, it takes some real soul searching. You know, wait a minute, when I take a non-lethal weapon up into a situation where the other guy might have a gun? And uh, that's where I think we get into this really interesting conversation about, well, what's your goal? Is your goal to mete out a death sentence or is it to stop the threat? Because if we can get to a point where that actually works better, you may be better able to protect yourself with the thing that doesn't kill the other guy. Uh, and that's obviously leading to a lot of soul searching and interesting conversations. And when I, oh, when I say it's a technology problem, just to answer your question specifically, the, the, the simple example is this, anytime a cop shoots and kills somebody, it's gonna have some version of these words. I had no choice. I didn't wanna kill him, but I, you know, he was pointing a gun at me, I had to stop the threat. And so under the, under the surface, what I'm hearing is the technology they rely on to stop the threat has this unintended parallel consequence that it kills the other person. Is, and is, is there going any, to military and some other places, too, where you can actually start to apply the same logic. Are there any statistics for uh, law enforcement in this country using non-lethal force versus lethal force and like kind of like the escalation of force? Like if they go in, is there like, a, I don't know, SOP where... Um, you know, hey, if you engage somebody, the first thing that you're going to go for is, uh, you know, a taser. Like and baton if, or taser. Yeah, like, uh, well, I think they took batons. I'm pretty sure that uh, maybe they don't have batons. And I know, uh, you know, after the Rodney King thing, you, they could no longer use a baton with two hands, which was an interesting one. 
because those guys were basically beating Rodney King with like two handed like baseball bat style baton. And so they couldn't carry. So, I mean, there's a bunch of weird, uh, you know, legality associated with it. But I wonder, like, um, if uh, there was any statistics or deal, like how often a taser is used to defuse a situation versus, um, you know, I mean, it, you know, like if, uh, you know, criminal or somebody in a bad situation sees the taser come out, is that as fearful as them pulling a gun or does the taser just, you know, how does that all work? Yeah, so, so a couple interesting stats there. So uh, I saw a study a couple of years ago in New York City, the chance of an officer, the frequency with which they'll actually shoot somebody with a firearm is about once every 225 duty years. So that means most cops will go through their career without actually firing a bullet at a person, which is you know, a good thing. Uh, by comparison, taser weapons get used about once every two years. So we have about 100 times the frequency of use with taser weapons because obviously they're, they're being used much earlier in the use of force continuum. Now, in general, in policing, there is this idea of a force continuum, which is you want to use the least amount of force that is appropriate to the situation you're in. Now, it doesn't mean that first you have to try your hands and then you go to the pepper spray, and then you go to the taser. You have to calibrate your response to the situation. So if I'm going in and there's a guy with a gun, all right, I go straight to my gun, for example. Um, so the, where this gets interesting is in situations of uncertainty, meaning if a cop's going to go in through a door to serve a warrant and they don't know what's on the other side, in the interest of their own self-preservation, the thing in their hand is going to be the gun because it's at the top of the force spectrum and they need to be prepared for the worst. I think that's actually a really rough situation to be in as a human being to imagine like if that's you going through the door and bang, now something's moving, there's somebody pointing something at you, your heart's racing, your vision's tuned in, and now you have to make a kill or don't kill decision under very uncertain, fast moving circumstances. Um, and then sometimes after the fact, oops, you know, wow, that was a 13 year old with a cell phone, not a man with a gun. And there's a lot of second guessing that happens. Uh, and you know, isn't that a training situation? I mean, um, uh, we've worked with a lot of you know law enforcement and also with a lot of military. And I'll tell you, uh, just due to funding and just opportunity, man, like law enforcement is severely undertrained for you know what they are going to face every single day in, in the deal. So I mean, when they kick in the door, you know, have these guys gone in and done all this stuff within the training environment? So I, I think like a lot of times when I hear any of these situations where like uh, you know, hey. A was put in a situation where he potentially, you know, reaches out and kills somebody. It always feels like um, he was uh, in a bad situation due to like either a lack of training or just bad awareness. Like I was thinking like the, the kid who, you know, what was it? Michael Brown and Ferguson. I mean, the fact that, you know, the cop or the cop was in his car, the kid reached in, grabbed the gun, repeatedly punched him in the face. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, how did it get to that point? Yeah. How did it get to that point? Like, how did like, like, how did you even get into that? Or, or, you know, um, the fact that like, uh, you're in that situation, like, uh, it, it just feels like when I hear a lot of these things, it just comes down to like more of a training issue. And I know that these guys are working on reduced budgets and, you know, everybody's in this budget constraint deal and they don't have the ability to time to work with this. So, I mean, is it, is it something where if we're not going to train people, up and put them in the best situation possible to do and execute their job at the best light, does it make sense to just not give them that, you know, like give them something else that works in, a, in the same light? Yeah. So I would say the training issue is a huge issue uh, for sure. But even if we set that aside, even the most well-trained officer can still go into situations where it's just, it's really, really hard to assemble all the information and make a perfect assessment. So even a perfectly trained officer is still 
going to end up in situations that are quite difficult to ascertain just how fast things are moving. And I'm not in any way suggesting we shouldn't give the cops guns. What I am suggesting is that over the next 10 years, if the non-lethal capabilities can approach parity with the gun, they'll still carry a gun, by the way. I don't think we should take them away. But my point is, for an officer who's going in and they're thinking, you know, I don't know what's inside, if they have something that they can have high confidence in that is reversible, so if it is, it turns out, oh, that, it was dark and I couldn't really see perfectly, that wasn't a gun, or even the worst case, like the 13-year-old with the toy gun, right? No person's going to know that one. I mean, frankly, you're fully justified legally to use lethal force, but that's still horrific for the community and then for the officers. Like, and the guy in, in Ferguson's a great example. You know, that guy's life is ruined. Now, I happen to believe his version of events. I think the evidence stacked up to support it as well, that he was pretty brutally assaulted. Oh, yeah. No, but, the, the guy, I mean, he got his ass beat. Uh, if you hear the accounts, I mean, that kid, uh, Michael Brown was a big kid. I mean, what was he, like 300 pounds, you know, 6'2", 6'3". He's a big, strong kid. And this guy, uh, you know, got into that situation and got himself into a bad situation either because he hadn't, you know, I mean, I mean shit, man, there's a reason that all the dudes that we've ever worked with that work in the prisons train their asses off every single day because they know they're going to get locked in a in a building with the toughest people on the planet. So, I mean, I think that there is like a... Uh, there has to be a huge responsibility of like sound body, sound mind. Like you got to be able to put yourself in a situation where if it goes to hands like that, you have to be able to defend yourself. And if you're only, um, I guess you could say is your only outlet, like somebody punches you in your face and you're instantly fearing for your life and you go to the gun. I, I like that just feels uh, like you've not prepared. But um, the other thing I was going to ask is uh, what's the effective range of the taser? I mean, I've, I, I remember the old school ones when they first got them, which were like you actually had to touch the person and then they turned into the darts. I keep wondering, like, what's the effective range of that? Uh, about 25 feet. So it's uh, now what we are looking at extending the range. But to be honest, for most pistol type confrontations with police, you know, the vast majority of those happen well within 20 feet. Uh, if we want to go out beyond 25 feet, then we're really starting to think more about long gun situations where an officer is likely going to transition from a pistol to a you know, an AR or something. or something like that. It, um, yeah, it, is, it, uh, is it a technology that's, that's extended to like, let's say, I, I always thought like uh, a, uh, a shotgun shell that had some form of like electrical... Um, you know, I guess you could say like incapacitator where they could load them. Cause I mean, I, I, I even have that for my shotgun. I have like rock salt buckshot and then I got, uh, uh, some nasty wad cutters in like one of my shotguns. And like, I always thought like that type of mentality where you have kind of the, uh, the escalation of like non-lethal to lethal in a kind of almost like a shotgun situation where you could, you know, yep. and then I know yeah. they do that with rubber bullets. A few years ago, we actually built exactly that. We built a 12 gauge shotgun round with an electrical engine in it. Uh, we ultimately discontinued that product for a couple different reasons. Um, it, it worked better in the lab than it did in the field. Uh, it was, and it was quite expensive. It was 150 bucks a shot. And so, yeah. hundred of those. <laughs> yeah. So what we found is, is frankly, our customers were really upset because it was so expensive and it wasn't as reliable as they were expecting. Uh, so we are looking at some other long, long range uh, capabilities as well, but we think, Right now, the, the the primary market, the big one, is the handgun uh, opportunity to to try to get that one fixed first, and then once we get there, then we'll really get on to the the long range. In the end of killing, you introduce four big goals, and I love how you 
just said we're, we're, we need to accomplish these and we need to make them ambitious. So would you mind introducing those four goals and kind of what, how they originated for you? Yeah, so, um, so this, this book started as a dinner conversation where I was uh, talking with some people and there was a conversation starter of what do you believe that no one else believes? And I told them, I said, I actually think we're getting to the point where we're approaching the end of war and the end of killing is something that's like a regular part of human civilization. And after everybody got done laughing at me and you know thinking I was pretty crazy, uh, we then started talking about it. And so the idea was to create like a call to action. And I think good calls to action have clear, identifiable, specific goals. Uh, and so the four uh, that I came up with, uh, you know, in the process of putting the book together, one is to set a goal for policing without killing by 2030. Uh, that's actually the easiest, so to speak, of the goals, because uh, most cops are already actually customers of ours. They're already carrying our technology. That is kind of on us to just move the improvement up to the point where uh, they're, they're going to the non-lethal weapon first. Again, they'll still carry their guns for those situations where they need it. But if we do our job right and we get it done with the non-lethal, we can cut down eventually to where they don't have to escalate. The second goal is really military operations without bloodshed. And there, I didn't put a year on it. Um, that, now, that's a tougher one too, right? We may see some of the old style of wars, but, but frankly, the wars we're seeing this century are very different. It's not, it's not tank battles in Europe, right? It's, we're, it's the Afghanistan, the Middle East, we're dealing with non-nation state actors, people that don't stand with a uniform and shoot at you in the open, but are using you know, suicide bombers and surreptitious activity they try to hide in the population. And in those situations, I think our lethal weapons can be, frankly, counterproductive. Uh, the most effective tactic if you're against the United States is to try to spoof us into killing the wrong people. Like when we bomb a wedding party in Afghanistan, that really undermines local support. And it undermines support at home here in the U.S. The news media goes nuts about the situation happens. People obviously are right, rightfully upset about it. Uh, so I've been meeting with military thinkers about like, look, how do we, how do we think about uh, creating tools in an environment where actually killing people can be counterproductive? Because for everyone you kill, you might be inflaming and recruiting more people. And in fact, even some of these enemies have used this concept of martyrdom as a recruiting tool. So just to do a thought experiment, if we had drones that instead of just dropping a Hellfire missile could also actually incapacitate and capture people and snatch them off the battlefield, we might actually be in a better spot to take that person and put them in, you know, orange, uh, orange prison garb and have them spend their life in prison and deny the whole dream of martyrdom, be able to interrogate the individual. And for the times when we, we get, get in trouble wrong. for this, I thought we got in trouble for this. We, we go and snatch grab and like, and put them into prisons and all that. Didn't we uh, get in the, the trouble with that? Uh, you know, there was there, there were certainly some people that didn't like that approach. But look, in military operations, you know, to me, it all comes down to the golden rule. Like, yeah, or some some people don't like whatever the military does. You're never going to please them. So let's set them aside. But if it's my neighborhood, if I'm living in Syria and some bad actors come in and take over the town, would I rather that the people who come to rescue me are doing it with F-15s and 500-pound bombs? or with some creepy stuff that like comes in and zaps people and hauls them off like something out of George uh, Orwell uh, novel. And I think at the end of the day, actually some of the stuff, while it sounds really creepy, could actually be far less creepy than 
splattering you know, human bodies all over the walls, which unfortunately is what almost all of our military equipment does today. And I'll be really clear, I'm not suggesting we disarm. I'm just saying, in addition to all this hyper-lethal stuff we've got, we need another layer that we can use, particularly when we're in uncertain situations. Like, is this a pregnant woman walking up on the checkpoint or is that a woman in a suicide vest? Um, and right now you got about five seconds to decide and you either got to decide, all right, I'm taking her out with lethal force or I'm letting her get close. And I, you know, in the course of writing the book, I talked to a number of generals and warfighters who've been in exactly that scenario. And it's a really messed up situation when you have to kill a woman or a child. And that does terrible things to the shooter as well. I guess it, pinning it as a technology problem where I mean, robotics are becoming readily available. I mean, people are just enthusiasts making robots. You oh. know what I mean? And there's like legit RoboCop around the corner where now all of a sudden, if you have a robot that goes like into this idea. unknown situation. I like the idea of drones. Like, why can't we just have drones that drop like a, like a, a like electrical net on somebody? I'm like, oh, there's an asshole. Okay, drone, drop a net on him and it zaps him and he passes out. Mm -hmm. Like, to me, like, I'm like, the fact that we even have a, uh, a situation where we're doing a face-to-face -face conflicts. I'm like, there has to be something like, right. like, I mean, so like you're talking about like hey, a pregnant woman walking up with like an ID, but you're also talking about like an effective range of 21 feet, you know? So what, like seven to eight yards. I mean, geez, like the IDs they're packing with are going to blow up 200 feet to 300 feet. So they have to make a decision sooner. So like, I wonder if like uh, the technology and that's the other question I'm sure we'll eventually get to like what are you doing tech wise and I don't want you to you know like out yourself on that but I feel like you guys got a pretty good handle but on that's, this that's his third goal is like big to, tech to decrease violence yeah like yeah. Uh, like what's the technological advancement that you guys are going to bring where people look and think this is a way better solution yeah so you you, you actually just crushed it right there you got it so step Drones? one is we got, we got to figure out how to do it with a handheld weapon so at least a cop can do it to somebody who's close then if we want to go out 100 meters or a kilometer, we can do it with a drone. You take the same technology from manual, repackage it, and send it downrange. That's why actually one of the reasons that I don't think you're going to see us rebuilding the shotgun round, because when you go out long ranges, the problem you run into is you need a lot of velocity to go a long distance, and velocity kills. So if we want to go 100 meters, I got to go at least 600 feet per second, and that's going to kill you when it hits you. Much better is, let me put this payload on a drone, and now I can send that downrange, and I can take you out. I mean, the operator could be in Nevada, and the drone could be in Syria. Uh, doesn't matter what the distance is. Now, that's, that was actually one of the things when I wrote the book. I was, you know, sometimes you, you toss out a crazy idea, and then you hunker down, and you wait for people to have a negative reaction. Um, but I haven't had it yet on the drone, uh, the non-lethal drones, because I think there's a big distinction I am uncomfortable too with the idea of building killer drones uh, where, you know, you could just, a lot of bad things could certainly happen. I think you can really reduce the risks if the drone is not capable of killing someone, but just incapacitating them. I think we're in a different order of magnitude of the risk. Robocop, I'm telling you, we thought it was going to be a robot man, but it's really going to be a drone with a siren. Yeah, well, let me ask you this one. So imagine that you're at the Pulse nightclub in Florida. Bang. We've got a, a shooter in the, in the nightclub. Now, today they're trying to train individual officers, first responders to show up and go in. But that's really, it's fairly high risk. 
And like we saw in Parkland, Florida, in that case, it didn't happen. Now, I'm not going to second guess anybody, but I would say traditionally what would happen is you would marshal a SWAT team and send them in. And that would take hours. A lot of bad stuff can happen in hours. Or if we even take the Mandalay Bay shooting in, in Las Vegas, it took 15 minutes, even though you already had a team of high caliber first responders on site just to locate and get to the guy. If we- uh, you brought up a good point. I was going to ask you this. Um, first of all, uh, that whole thing in Mandalay Bay stunk like something that was bullshit. Because I'll tell you this, like the fact that they only released one picture of that cat and on top of it, it went away in like seven days. Like it was crazy. Like they didn't have surveillance footage. I'm, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist at all. I'm not. But like you're telling me that old dude took storm windows down and was able to open up that much file. Come on. M- multiple shooters. Anytime you say I'm not. A conspiracy, or I'm not, I don't mean to insult you, you John, are a but flat earther. You are. You believe in flat earth. You believe in flat earth. But, uh, no, you believe that I believe in flat earth. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, dude, if, if you take a and uh, okay, let's go with the Mandalay Bay. That some like senior citizen was able to get all that equipment up there, take down the storm windows, whatever, and then open up and have that type of thing. I mean, think about like. How, like, what's the non-lethal approach on stopping that dude? And then what? And then he just kills himself? Like, uh, that's a weird deal. Sorry, sorry. That that one has always really bothered me. Yeah. The whole, so the, the whole man really may. Regardless of what happened there, here's how I would approach that in the next three to five years. When you have an events team like that, you have a couple drones that are there that have uh, a multiple microphone array that can do directional, uh, you know, directional analysis on sound. As soon as you hear shots fired, you're popping those things in the air. They're self-orienting to the direction of the sound waves, and they're flying toward it. So you could, you could have had a drone on target, identifying that guy probably 30 to 60 seconds, and next to the target in another 30 seconds. Now, in that case, I'm not advocating that that guy uh, – I'm not making a judgment call like whether he deserved lethal force or not – what I would say is the risk of having a drone that can start deploying lethal force, even though it might be appropriate in that situation, probably crosses a line that that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And in that scenario, if we had a high reliability non-lethal that could incapacitate that guy as the drone's flying up to the shooting position, then that provides us, I think, a very fast response vehicle that doesn't require the time and prep it takes for an entry team that could actually suppress the threat a lot faster. Also, it, uh, it takes him out of a non-lethal way so he doesn't have the opportunity to kill himself because uh, I wish we could question that dude. I would love to hear the whole story behind that thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, for like, sure. I, I mean, uh, and that's the interesting thing about a lot of these guys. They end up like offing themselves and we're kind of left in this like aftermath and not that we want to go through some like drawn out, you know, court case where, you know, the kid with the orange hair, like, you know, staring off into the distance. But, like, I, I mean, I sometimes think that unless we get in and figure out, like, where the root problem comes from these things, like, how do we effectively fix this stuff? And, like, how do we prevent it? Like, I just saw a deal the other day that, like, the new back-to-school wardrobe involves uh, plate carriers and bulletproof um, lunch boxes and all these things that now they're marketing and going to issue to kids. Like, oh, your backpack has a plate, has a, uh, uh, you know, sap plate in it. I mean, like, it's like, like this is the world we live in and this is what it's become. Yep, it's uh, 
But it seems, I mean, it well, seems, like, but, but, you know, Rick, it seems but think about like technology if they had like, that, a, like an EMP in a classroom. Like, that's kind of what I always thought. Like, what if they had like a kind of an electrical EMP where like if somebody came in, the teacher could hit a button and it would basically just shock everybody in there and knock everybody out. <laughs> right. Like, like, think about that. Like, what if every class had the like had it wired up where like the, the floors just lit up and everybody like even the kids, everybody got shot. Like the fucking men in black. Yeah. I mean, like, like, is that what's going to happen? That you're just going to have to electrically, like, uh, I mean, not kill people, but like zap everybody because you don't know who the threat is? Yeah, well, I've actually got a scene in the book, uh, or I've actually got a graphic novel version, if you guys are uh, interested in it, where, you know, we did a comic book of some of the scenes in the book where we did a school shooting. And similarly, I would go same direction you're going, but in a little more targeted fashion. So you could put something in the ceiling of every classroom uh, that wouldn't be that expensive. Basically, it's a small drone that's got a non-lethal payload in it. And basically uh, you have a sound actuator on it. So as soon as you've got gunfire or a remote operator can turn it on, you can just pop it down and then use the, you know, the, the AI in these drones again, really good at tracking people, you know, turn towards the thing that's making loud noises. And if it see flashes, bang, just take that one out. And I think you could see, you know, on a five to 10 year time horizon, you could have something that could be interacting in a matter of seconds to take out a threat and only the threat. And my like all of that shit is pretty readily available to like even enthusiasts to build that type of stuff. So it's yeah. like the technology you're talking about, Rick, which is kind of cool. And like as I'm just thinking about it, is is you're you're right. It's right there. Like it's right at the yeah. right at the well, tip of our the fingers. Thing. The thing that's holding us back isn't the tech. You're right. You you know, a good enthusiast could go build it, but no business is going to go build it today because who do you sell it to? Yeah. You go to your local school principal, like, hey, you want to buy some taser drones? So I've been actually trying to push uh, Congress to do a national grand challenge like they did on driverless vehicles 10 or 15 years ago, because you need a forum where you can get industry and inventors to come in where like the outcome is actually something where there's a program where schools or the department of education would sort of have the political cover to go buy it. Whereas right now, like my local principal is not going to buy something like that. Like, Shit, I'm, I'm not going to take that risk. So it's, it's more about public acceptability in politics than the actual technology limitations. So on the public side of things, as you're you know going around and kind of campaigning and having discussions, what, t- what type of naysaying go- is, is thrown at you towards these? Because this kind of makes sense to me. Hackers? Right? Hackers like taking control and zapping kids? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a legit, that's yeah. a legit risk. I, I think that's one where, um, you know, we've got... Uh, there are things you can do that can can lock down uh, pretty well. Nothing's impenetrable, but like, that's why I wouldn't want to do lethal drones because they could create true mayhem. Whereas even if the hackers did take over some non-lethal drones, they could cause some mischief, I would say. Uh, but, you know, I wouldn't want them tasing my kids at school, but it wouldn't be the end of the world compared to if they were able to set off an explosive Could you imagine the lawsuit, like a hacker, like crash override or something in that awful Angelina Jolie movie? What? Like, <laughs> Sorry, wonderful hackers. movie. Have you seen Hackers Intern? <laughs> write it down. Yeah, write that down. Oh, we, got, uh, we got an intern over here. Yeah, he, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, like they <laughs> take control that. and they're just tasing kids at school. Can you imagine the lawsuit associated with yeah, this? Yeah, it would be, a, oh, it would be a bad thing. But, you know, that's um, – There's. I, we also have nuclear weapons, right, that uh, we have to figure those things out. We've got military hardware subject to be hacking. So those are concerns, but they're addressable to a reasonably low probability. So, Rick, as you're kind of going through and dreaming up this tech and probably working on it, right, um, why not uh, 
are there other ways to incapacitate a potential threat other than like this electric shock? Like what about noise or light or I don't know? Great, great questions. Um, so I've spent obviously 20 some years, you know, thinking about this and electricity. Uh, if it seems like I'm really focused on it, it's not just because that's, you know, some personal weird fascination I've got. <laughs> it's like, if you do a, a first principles analysis of how you can paralyze and incapacitate the human body without causing damage, electricity is far and away your best bet. So let me go to the ones you talked about, light and sound. There's been a fair amount of military research into it. Um, what you get with light and sound is like basically stuff that can affect your eyes and your ears, and it can make it uncomfortable, but it won't incapacitate you. Um, yeah. 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 Like, or like, they have ear pro in. Or yeah. Something. Or they have ear pro or in so sunglasses. Some good stuff you can do there. You know, like a flashbang grenade is, is great. It can be a little bit disorienting. But if you have a truly focused person, like a terrorist who's willing to die, or just a guy who's high on meth, those things don't necessarily work. Next up, let's get to pain, pain uh, things like pepper spray, et cetera. Super painful. Again, it's a good tool. But if you have somebody who's willing to die or who is like just not willing to go back to jail, People fight through pepper spray and stuff all the time. So now you can go up another level and say, okay, well, there's the, like, let's just start breaking bones and mechanically damaging things. Well, we want to avoid that. So then if we wanted to actually take away somebody's ability to fight, the most humane way to do it in terms of low injury is to take away neuromuscular control. And there's two ways I can do that because your nervous system is an electrochemical system. I can do it chemically with anesthesia. I can put you to sleep for surgery or I can hit you with a tranquilizer dart. Or alternatively, I can use electricity. Now, the problem with chemicals is the administration is pretty tricky. So like those tranquilizer darts they use on animals in the old you know, Wild Kingdom videos, those have a between a 10 and 20% fatality rate because it's just hard to get the dosing right. And depending on where you hit the animal, it's gonna take a while to get into their bloodstream because when they're running, you don't get to put an IV into the vein, right? You've got to shoot something remote. So you're probably looking at intramuscular dosage. You're looking at probably a 60 second to five minute onset to effect. And then you've got to worry about allergies. Some people have allergies to like, I'm allergic to penicillin. And then doses, what do you use for like a 50 pound person versus a 300 pound person? So you got to be dialing dosing around. Like the Russians actually use chemistry, right? They use this inhalant in the, uh, in the siege in the theater in Moscow. And they had pretty good results, but they killed a fair number. Uh, we don't have to worry about the dosing effects. There's actually a very high tolerance. The amount of electricity that will cause your nerves to fire and your muscles to lock is uh, more than 10 times lower than the amount that will stop your heart. So we've got a really high effective dose to lethal dose and the time to onset of effect is immediate. When I hit you electricity, it doesn't take time to absorb. And so for all those reasons, I think the primary immediate incapacitation, the, the most effective technology will be electricity. And then you might supplement it with hitting somebody with a dose of a tranquilizer or something else if you need a more long-term effect. Like uh, in old school, like dart in your neck. You got dart in your neck, man. That's uh, the whole time he's talking you're, about. It, I'm you're like crazy, <laughs> you're crazy, man. Uh, no, I mean it, it's uh, like it's uh, it's yeah. a really interesting solution to an awful problem. 
And uh, like, and I'm, I'm sure for every reason I could think of, like why this would not work, like why would they want this in a military theater when we know wars of occupation are just about transfers of wealth, you know? And they're like, oh, well, non-lethal. Now we're in a situation where like, uh, we've shocked 100,000 people and now we've created uh, internment camps and people are losing their mind because, you know, we have these internment camps of people in orange jumpsuits that we've shocked. So now do we just use shock therapy to like cure them of it? Like, man, like it's uh, for like every solution you could think of in terms of like why it wouldn't work. It almost makes sense to be like, you know, what are people necessarily doing that deserves the ending of their life? And shouldn't they like if like like the, the, the AKA the life bouncer we talk about, you know, we, we have this theory that like in the world, there should be people that are called life bouncers. And when you're too far out there, you should probably just have somebody throw you out of the proverbial club. <laughs> like we see this all the time on Facebook where people just go deep and you're like, you see somebody be like, you're out. Like, I'm just going to bounce you out of the club. You know, you probably had a little too much fun time for you to go home. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, you know, actually, yeah. that, that's a great point. Uh, so in, in one of the military uh, scenarios in the book, I, I, I went a little further afield to think about how you might solve that problem. Uh, namely, the argument being that some people need to be permanently removed from society because of the risk that they pose. You know, however, that means is the traditional that's meant, all right, you kill them. Um, now, I think the, part of the challenge is, so you end up killing a number of people that also don't fit the criteria, and you get all these negative effects when you do that. Now, one of the ways that I think you might get there that could be pretty interesting uh, would be if you could actually... So, so the, let me get to the concern. Whenever some warfighters say, I don't trust the legal system to keep these guys locked up. If we catch Osama bin Laden and he gets a great lawyer and they let him go, boy, that is too catastrophic. Like some people just need killing is the line of argument. And actually some extreme cases like bin Laden, that actually probably makes sense. But for many of these situations, imagine we capture this guy alive. Well, what if we had the ability to, instead of waterboarding them, actually put them through a very high resolution lie detector test. Now, sounds a little bit crazy, but both Elon Musk and Ray Kurzweil, two you know, guys with pretty good track records of predicting what's technologically possible. Kurzweil runs natural language at, at Google, one of the world's experts in AI, and of course, Elon is Elon. Um, both of them are predict- predicting in the next 10 to 15 years that we'll have high-speed brain-to-computer interface technology, not for reading people's brains, but because people want to be involved in super immersive virtual reality you know, think about just the gaming industry, uh, the interface, like interfacing my computer, you know, typing on a keyboard is a very slow interface. And there's some really interesting work happening. Already there are some systems that you can uh, interface directly. They're pretty crude today uh, with the brain to a computer. Well, you can imagine if we can capture this guy and maybe it'll take 30 years from now, but actually be able to have very high resolution signals, either just to either ask them questions and know with high probability whether they're lying or not, or to actually tap into their memory banks and see what these people have done. Um, I think, you know, again, it's, it's a little out there, but I don't think the technology is outside the realm of the plausible. And I think at that point, we, we start to get away from all of this over-lawyering where it's like, look, let's just tap in and see, is this guy a murderous thug? What's he done or not? And I think we can improve the reliability of the post-capture incarceration. What do we do with them? I mean, do we plug them back in and put them in their pod and use them as a battery like in the Matrix? Being like, <laughs> you you go into suspended animation and we're going to use your body heat that transfers into power and energy and use you like a big battery like in the Matrix. Seems That seems fair. 
Well, oh. just don't do bad things. You don't have to worry about it. This is like but that. Who decides? This is this is the conversation. I'll be we on have. the panel. Don't worry. Right. You can so, trust me. so just to give you a little backstory, uh, we had a conversation today, uh, and like I have this uh, theory that in this country, uh, what makes this country great is people's. Um, ability to have their opinions and be able to speak their mind. And like, uh, for you, like, let's say you have an opinion that differs in mine. Like it's my right to like stand there and scream at the top of the, the lungs. Uh, what I believe in your face while you scream at yours. And like, you know, and like, like we were kind of figuring out today, like, um, in the terms of like hate speech, how that works. Like if somebody's, uh, um, you know, believes in like the Nazis or something. And, uh, I fucking find it hard to believe that in America, people would walk down the street with a Nazi flag and believe in that fucking nonsense. We fought a war. We lost it. Like those guys are dicks and they shouldn't be allowed. But here in America, people have the right, like a freedom of speech and the right to believe what they want. And people are like, no, they shouldn't, we should be able to, you know, do whatever. And I'm like, that's a slippery slope because then who gets to decide like what's hate speech? Like today it's this and tomorrow it's like, Oh, you posted a suit, a re- you know, reverse suit or a, a reverse sear recipe for your fillets. Uh, that's killing of animals and you eating meat. That's hate speech. And now you get thrown away. So like what I'm uh, nervous about, especially in today, is not necessarily because I think that there is a common sense, and even though common sense is anything but common, there's like a um, a very slippery slope of like letting people decide what's right and wrong uh, based off of you know this you know like um, you know we were talking about what was it the uh, um, uh, the what was it the fragile mind uh, the. Um, coddling of the, yeah, American, the mind. American mind where there was this weird thing like uh, because what you're saying stresses me out and we've equated stress to damage now all of a sudden your words are hurting me because it's damaging me and stressing me out and now you shouldn't be able to say what you're doing because it stresses me out like that's just an interesting thing and I think like um, when you ask somebody to make a decision like that you know I mean uh, the non-lethal approach is better because you're you know who are these people to make like who's the person that makes the decision on this? And like, the problem is, is that we've seen this go through, man. Like, you know, and then, uh, uh, you know, kind of the end of democracy is when people are no longer able to speak their minds and they free that the guy shows up with a black bag, puts it on their head and drags them away and, you know, sends them to a internment camp or, you know, a gulag or something. So like, I think with a lot of this stuff, like it always comes down to like, who's the one who's pulling the, the levers and making the decisions on what's right and wrong. And even if there's someone legit today, did who's the next guy and then right. the next guy and then the next yep. guy regardless well, of how well intended well, right but we have zero transparency i mean like uh like the i've told these guys like i think the single worst job on this planet would be to be the president of the united states i just like like you please nobody but what i would want to i would want to have access just to that level of information can you imagine like the amount of information that comes in on a daily basis where you get to see with 100% transparency, or so you hope, of all of these situations, because what we see is just the lens in which the media presents it to us. Like, uh, you know, you see like a CNN, you got a Fox News, which are these polar opposites, and then I try to watch BBC, you know, Algiers or BBC or something else. I, it's and, it's and all it's, three card Monty. I well, want to know what's going on underneath that they're distracting us with this news. Well, but uh, <laughs> but think about that. Like, if I think that there was a, a deal in this country probably 40, 50, 60 years ago where there was the, you know, that people felt the responsibility to be able to provide accurate information. And I don't think that's accurate oh, anymore. No. So we're being, you know, cold and, and um, 
we live out here in Texas and I tried to give my kids a little life lesson the other day. My neighbor has a ton of goats. So one dog, 50 goats. And uh, my, my daughter asked like, how does one dog manage all those goats? And I'm like, watch the dog. So the goats keep their face down eating the grass. And the way the dog moves them is he starts running as fast as he can and then barking and the goats get nervous and then they move. It's the greatest analogy I've ever seen for what's happening in our civilization. People are heads down eating grass in their phones. And the only way they know to move and to react is when somebody runs full speed barking at them. The problem is, is that the, the news media and everything around us is just big dogs barking at us. So how do we know what the threat is? Those goats don't know what the threat is. The dog doesn't even know there's a threat. It's just doing it to move the goats. So I, um, I just think with a lot of this stuff, man, like we're not presented transparency on much. So being able to make the decision to end somebody's existence, like, hey, we're going to go bomb this place. Okay, why? What did these people do? What's so terrible that we have to drop a bomb in this moment? And then they, you know, they provide information. So maybe it makes sense to do a non-lethal approach where at least then there becomes margin some transparency. Yeah. High margin for error. You zap the wrong person. And then you plug in with Elon's mind reader and you he, find out it's the wrong person. You, okay, so you've got a lawsuit on your hands, but you haven't. Ended them. somebody's life who, you know, wasn't it wasn't warranted for like a like you said a death. Well, sentence. I, and I also think for cops going out in distressful situations. I mean, what are those guys making fifty, sixty grand a year? So you got a guy who's you know in Ferguson who overwork, who, who's, underpaid, yeah, who, you know, who's working some some shitty shift and getting his ass beat by some three hundred pound dude who pulls out his gun because he fears for his life and kills his kid. And now, fuck, he's in hiding because you know shit. Black Lives Matter and all these movements started in, in exact opposition to this moment. I mean, that guy will forever live in infamy, and he's like, God, I wish I had a non-lethal approach. I wish I got to zap that dude, you know? Yeah, I got to agree. I mean, th these are going to create new problems. Like, what do you do when you have the bad guys now who aren't dead? But I think those are at least you've got – you're not killing them in the expediency of the moment. Somebody's making the decision to either terminate the person or not or capture the person or not. So at least it gives the ability to be a little more transparent – and thoughtful about what the aftermath is. And, you know, we're always going to have wing nuts on both sides of the political spectrum that are going to say, Hey, let everybody go or lock everybody up. I, I think in general, the, the, the mass of the population gets to the, you know, gets to reasonable answers over time. Uh, so I like to think that, you know, we shouldn't, uh, killing people can be the expedient thing in certain circumstances, but it doesn't mean it's the right thing. And, and I pretty confident we can figure out what to do with them after the fact, uh, that that shouldn't hold us back from the progress toward uh, you know, toward a world where we've got finer tuned mechanisms for dealing with problems than 500 pounders being launched off the wing of an F-15. Probably a little shift of gears, but uh, Rick, I imagine much like a like a pastry chef, uh, you get a taste of your own medicine. How many times have you, how <laughs> yeah. many times have you yourself been tased in your life? I've done it seven times. Seven? I was going to go, I thought like at least 20. One a year, right? No, I'm a wuss. I'm a <laughs> wuss. It's not fun. Uh, I've done it seven times. And after the seventh, I was like, you know, this is getting gratuitous. I had a, I had a friend of mine, uh, Sid Heal, who was an L.A. sheriff and a Marine, who had a great saying, once is curious, twice is stupid. And I made it up mm -hmm. to seven. So it's, it's somewhere <laughs> way below stupid. I was going to say, Luke, that's a pretty good uh, I've not analogy. yet been tased. <laughs> yeah. I've not yet been tased. Uh, I've been pepper sprayed. I've pepper and, um, sprayed myself yeah, when I was a kid. Pepper sprayed was awful. I got tased uh, not by a dart, but I got hit with a cattle prod. Hmm. And uh, that was awful. So I guess going, so as this, in the infancy of this technology, Rick, I mean, you like, 
is there a, is there a call out for volunteers to get tested to be tased or like how can you talk us through that that process or maybe not <laughs> asking for a friend just asking for a friend so in the early days so look you know i started out with this uh, former nasa scientist who'd invented this thing back in the 60s in a garage in tucson uh, so initially we just we copied the same electronics they had from back in the day and then we discovered Oh, crap, the early tasers didn't work very well. I mean, we were talking about Rodney King earlier. He was hit with an early LAPD taser, and it failed to stop him, so they went to their batons. Uh, so we had to go back and re-engineer the amount of electricity. And there's a little bit of trial and error when you're doing that. So a couple of my taser hits were shots to the arm as we were trying some circuit modifications. And after a couple rounds of that, we said, you know, yeah, this is not fun, and it's probably not very scientific. So we hit the reset button and uh, we, uh, we found a, a cardiologist and neuroscientist who helped us develop some testing protocols use, using pigs. And because uh, they're fairly similar, you know, in their muscle tone and their cardiac uh, effects to people. Uh, so we developed some test protocols and we would anesthetize the pig so it wouldn't feel any pain. And then we could actually hit it with electric shocks and look at and observe and ultimately instrument and measure what's happening with the muscles. So part of our secret sauce now is we're really good. We can tune our systems almost like a puppet master. I can take an anesthetized pig, put our electrodes on it and move, control its movements pretty specifically. So that's where we do our effectiveness testing is usually on pig models. And then once we've dialed in what we want the weapon to do, then we'll do cardiac safety testing because cardiacs, the, if electricity is gonna kill you, that's where it's gonna do it. Uh, so then we'll do a lot of cardiac safety testing. Once we've got that data, then we move into human volunteers. And it turns out you'll get a lot of volunteers for free T-shirts, and we always have a medical doctor on staff. Uh, uh, I told these I'm guys there, there was a deal where uh, they had a, like, um, I, I don't know how they set it up, but they had, like, a line, and, like, uh, like these guys just set up a line. And I think there was, like, 20 dudes. They all got in line, and people just started lining up behind them. They ended up with, like, a line that was, like, two or three blocks long, and they get to the front, and they were giving free punches. And the people that like, got to the front, they were like, God, I waited two hours. And they're like, yeah, well, you get a free punch. They're like, all right, give it to me. And everybody accepted the free punch. Like, ah! that's, that's when I realized that, like, if it's free, people will always take it, like even a free punch. Well, you, you want some volunteers. Here's what you do. If you ever need more volunteers, you go to Chicago Bears tailgate, okay? And uh, you just <laughs> sit out there, and then eventually a bunch of drunk bros are going to come up and be like, so what's up? Are you going to tase us? And you could be like, yeah, it's going to cost you 50 bucks. And then they'll pay you. They will, after enough beers, they'll pay you to have one of you tase one of their buddies. Yeah. You know, there, there's actually some truth to that. I've seen, like, when we first went into the law enforcement market, we'd go around and we'd ask for volunteers. And once you get the first one, then the testosterone kicks <laughs> in and the fear pressure kicks How in. How bad could it really be? That's what they're thinking. Uh, did um, the, the original ones were like, uh, you know, like uh, there were like two prongs and you had to like touch somebody with it. Was that the original um, iteration, and then you guys went to like actually like the uh, the gun that shoots the darts? No, interestingly, that's uh, uh, it looks that way. But the, the 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 story behind the scenes is the original Taser was launched in around 1974. It was a dart firing device, actually it's sort of pretty similar to what we have today. Only the electronics were not as refined, and it didn't work super well. Now, when they launched that first taser, it had one big problem. Well, two. The second one was it didn't work very well. But the really big problem was it was illegal. And the reason it was illegal is it used gunpowder to launch the darts. 
which is very rational, right? You want to launch a projectile, put a little gunpowder, done. But once you do that, you are now, that device under the laws of the United States is a firearm. And as a firearm, you cannot disguise it as anything but a firearm. It's got to look like a gun. Well, that original taser, uh, let's just say the original inventor had a great team of inventors and not a lawyer within sight. So they designed a weapon <laughs> that was illegal because they decided, hey, let's make it look like a flashlight. It'll be really useful. You know, you can use it as a flashlight. And then if you got a fire taser, you can. They launched the product. And about a year later, there's a knock on the door. And it, yeah, we're agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Yeah. Uh, you guys are selling illegal Title II weapons in the same category as uh, mortars, sawed-off shotguns, like pretty gnarly stuff. And that's what shut the taser down initially because they had used gunpowder to launch the darts. So then what happened is some enterprising individual said, okay, let's just get rid of all the darts and we'll sell the, the stun guns you've seen yeah. without gunpowder, without darts. And so for about 15 years, that's all there was. And then I got the original inventor and we engineered the gunpowder out, went to compressed air so it would not be a gun. And then the dart firing systems came back in the early 90s. Uh, so was the Rodney, uh, did, with the Rodney King deal, I think that they had the stun guns. They were... Because I remember seeing like, oh, that that was with uh, with the darts, huh? They had the darts. Yep, they shot him a couple times. Started with the original inventor. So of course, the first thing I asked him was, "Hey, what ha what happened to Rodney King?" And his perception was that the batteries weren't charged. I don't know if you guys remember the old NICAD batteries with the memory problems. If you like didn't fully discharge them before you charged them again, they would only store a little bit of the charge. And he believed, or at least that's how he explained it, that. Oh, no, no, the Rodney King, the batteries were NICAD batteries and they weren't charged. I subsequently learned that that was not the case. The problem was the early tasers were just underpowered. If you shot, and I saw this in numerous uh, volunteer scenarios where if you get a really focused guy, like a martial artist who knows how to control his, his pain and his focus, they would go through the old taser like a knife through butter. Once we tuned up to where we could tune the electricity to take out your motor nerves, doesn't matter if you feel pain or not, because we can actually physically lock up your, your skeletal muscles. Is there a, uh, um, I keep thinking that there is a, like, a, what's a, like a recreational device associated with this? Like, hey, we're going out. Why don't we just lock up those muscles? There's probably some, oh, weird, man. there's probably <laughs> like a whole like weird fetish thing where it's like, oh, well, you know, hey, I'm, I'm going to the club. We're going to get tased a little bit later. I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm pretty sure there's not. I'm, I'm looking at Luke over here because like this is right up his alley. He'd be like, oh, it's a good Saturday night. What's happening? Oh, we're going to get a taste a couple times. Someone's couple taser bait. One of my buddies, taser bait. Who's it going to be? And, and they, I, they I probably, would know. Taser tag. I probably shouldn't go here, but what the Let's hell. Let's go. Let's do it. When I was doing my original research on the taser, I was in the University of Chicago Medical Research or the Medical Library, and I'm doing searches on electrical safety. And... I discovered a case where uh, this couple had a fetish with electricity and they had rigged up two rod-like devices that was hooked up to a rheostat, you know, where you can turn the electricity up or down. And they would insert those rods in certain places. Um, and lo and behold, uh, they both had the rods inserted somewhere and the man's wedding ring touched between the two rods and it short-circuited them, blew out the rheostat, and electrocuted and killed them both um, because it basically blew out the control system and then 
it was pretty gnarly uh, to read the uh, case study on that one. So uh, yeah, could yeah, you imagine done some odd stuff? We've in, stayed out of that market in the Keister, huh? And oh god, right, places. Right, right in the prostate. It could be various places. Oh, god. There's not that many options, but oh. high probability. Thirty, depending on gender. I, would, I always think like, okay, uh, like when you hear these stories. What's the lead up to this? <laughs> like, like I always think, like whenever you hear this stuff, like what with, was with like the first domino to fall? Yeah, like hey, I think like it's static I'm, electricity. I'm like touching my tongue on like the uh, like a nine volt battery, and you're like, oh, that was pretty good. What if we get like a rheostat and like hooked it up here to a couple <laughs> car batteries, a couple metal probes up the ass? But here's the thing: that's the that's the um, the visionary thinking like that. Then <laughs> there's the conversation with your CEO. Hey, babe. Hey, hey, don't forget about the uh, cream cheese at the market. And uh, hey, how do you feel about sticking metal rods up your butt and electrocuting ourselves? Like that then becomes a conversation. The, the casual weave in? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, Tex. How do you weave that in? Don't. So how do you feel the taser <laughs> is presented in pop culture? Right. Uh, the I just went to a bachelor party this past weekend. And my lead up, of course, was the hangover. And there's that famous taser scene when they steal the cop car and then to get out of it. They got to get tased in front of those kids. But uh, how else do you feel the taser has been represented in pop culture? Uh, you know, you got to have a sense of humor about this stuff. Uh, you know, that, that was a pretty humorous scene in The Hangover. Um, it, it's been an interesting business to be in, right? Because we're dealing with these life and death issues. They're pretty serious. Um, you know, and sometimes we have tragedies involving a taser where somebody falls the wrong way and, and we've had a couple lethal head injuries. Um, and then you have some of these humorous uses, like you see, uh, it's, it's, I guess, uh, you gotta just kind of not let it all get to you. Cause we, you know, we deal with life and death every day. And, and so sometimes it's a little bit of an outlet when we see, you know, some of the more humorous stuff Hollywood will do. Uh, uh you know, is like, there a place that the taser could get shot that would like, like, I don't know, like if they were to, the dart were to go into the skull or like in the neck or like in the, like got you in the junk, like got you in the balls or something. Junum? Like, I keep thinking, like, when you got hit with the, like, like is, I mean, because I know they're probably, like, looking for center mass, big fleshy areas to shock you out. But I wonder if there's been instances where somebody's moved or the, or the uh, aim has been poor and gotten people in, like, I don't know, I taste them in his eyeball. Yeah, uh, I'd say the worst is the eyeball. You don't hit the eyeball. Uh, about half the time you'll lose the eye, meaning, you know, it, it ruptures the orb, or maybe a little bit less. It depends on a number of circumstances. Um you know, and even not just pulling the needle out of the eyes is, is pretty rough. Uh, after that, I would say genitals and throat. Uh, you want to, you know, not get a, a, basically think of it like you're getting a fish hook in the, in, the, in the larynx would be a bit rough. And by the way, these have all happened. I mean, there've been around 6 million police uses of taser weapons. You know, I've seen pictures of eye shots and genital shots and all that kind of stuff. You want to avoid that stuff, but um, it's typically not catastrophic. The, the, actually, the the biggest real risk would be using it in flammable environments like meth labs and other places where the arc can set off an explosion. You know, there, there've been some fatalities associated with that. Would it rupture a testicle as well, like an eyeball? Kind it would idea? not rupture a testicle. And, and uh, we know that from the, there's been some experience there. Uh, not that oh. I would want to repeat it, but um, it has oh. happened. <laughs> like I, I, like I, I think I saw a video of a guy getting shot in the, in, you know, in the crotch. Yeah, not, it's not recommended. Uh, and in that case, we do train police officers. Like a lot of times they'll pull the darts out themselves if it's just in the back or the leg. Oh. Uh, but we train them. If it's in the eyes, throat, or genitals, get them to a doc. Wow. My God. 
I can't believe I haven't been tased. <laughs> um, dude, I got electric fence in the what? pastures. I'm sure we yeah, can. Yeah, been peeing on it. <laughs> <laughs> you only got till August first, so yeah. No, that, what, you know. What city are you guys in? We're in Austin, Texas. Austin. Yeah. We could arrange to make this happen if you want to. We we <sighs> we taste cops all the time in volunteer yeah, scenarios. Callie, for a great show. Remember, Callie had to get tased. Yeah. yeah. Right and pepper spray. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the gal who actually runs the production for for the the podcast uh, is she shifted career paths and is up in Seattle now with Seattle PD. It's just so I would tell you this: if you've been pepper sprayed, that's way worse than the taser. Really, uh, I have not been pepper sprayed because I've been around people doing it. That is a nasty yeah. twenty to thirty minutes. Uh, you do yeah, uh, where the taser? It's a five second ride, and yes, it's unpleasant. But when it's over, it's over. It's, you don't have that lingering, you know, ugh, pain. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, it's just the same as like a, a power dot, right? Yeah, same thing. EMS. <laughs> like EMS. Like like it, yeah, it's basically like recruiting max motor units all at once. So it, it's an involuntary concentric contraction. Yeah. Like your whole body locks up. Yep. And then there is some sensory load that goes with it too. So we do hit your your pain nerves on the way in because you know they're in the skin they're there uh, we don't target them specifically so you get all these contractions happening that's kind of terrifying because you know your body's doing things you can't control and that's a very strange sensation as you're going through it and then there are waves of energy and a little bit of pain at the surface it, it's not fun so that's um, interesting so like i guess what about it like the so like the elbow right so you have antagonist muscles so like you have your biceps and triceps do, do do your arms curl or do they straighten or does it depend on which is stronger uh, for you? Usually, and I'm not going to answer for him, but I would think that it is a voluntary concentric contraction. Cool. If you've ever seen somebody get tased, they usually lock up like eh, like this. Yeah, it's going to depend a little bit on where, where we hit you. Oh, yeah, good point. We have one of our early uh, guys used to call himself the Marquis de Sade because he would do so many demos and he would place the darts in different places out of curiosity to see what happened. And you would see, like, if you hit somebody in the back, you're going to see the shoulders arch back. It's going to pull all the muscles. Mm -hmm. You're going to basically tend to contract the muscles that are within the zone of, uh, of, of, uh, of stimulation. Mm -hmm. uh, so I have seen sometimes, too, you've seen guys' arms go stiff. We've seen some where they tend to mm -hmm. curl up more than going stiff. But it really just depends on, you know, if you think about, like, the, wherever the two darts hit, all the nerves between them get stimulated. And if you think of those nerves like the strings of a puppet master from the brain down to the muscles, whatever nerves are passing through, we're basically taking those nerves and then any muscle that's attached to it's going to contract. Is, uh, are the darts like a, like a positive and a negative? Yep. So, so you obviously need to make contractual or, con or you're basically using the body as the conductor. So both darts go in and then that's what makes a complete fuse. Oh, that makes sense. Go, yeah, that's why we need two darts to complete the circuit and then we're just transmitting the energy. Gotcha. That, that, yeah, that, yeah that, makes, that makes total sense. So what... Um, Maybe you can share. Maybe you can't. What is like the visionary uh, ev evolution of this technology? Is it always going to be a two dart system? Are there nets? Is it going to be wireless? Can you so say? Of, of those, we'll see wireless for a while, right? I mean, the wireless transmission of electrical energy would be a really big, you know, business as well. Uh, but I think uh, lots of ways to connect the electricity to the body, whether it's nets, whether it's arrays of darts, there's a number of ways we do it, whether it's a, you know, a small aerial vehicle that gets close to you and then deploys some things. Uh, 
I, so I think it'll be less about wireless and just more about engineering better, more reliable connections and getting that power supply in a portable state so we can send it downrange without necessarily, you know, launching it straight at you. And then is, so it's, they're all battery powered as well. Yeah. So then I guess as battery technology changes that could reduce like the, the physical size of the device. Yep. Absolutely. Hmm. Interesting. And probably rechargeable and reusable. Well, I was so thinking for environmentally like, I was thinking for like a wireless solution. Why couldn't there be some form of a battery pack or some power source on the darts? Mm-hmm. So like as it goes in, because I, I keep thinking like, let's say you were in a, in a situation where you had to engage multiple attackers. And like as you shot one, because if you think like if you see it go out, like the uh, the gun actually is the power source. So the 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 wires go in and because like I, I've also seen like the ability to like. Uh, when the person, like, you know, I think I saw something where the guy was on PCP, and as they shot him, he, like, went down and went to get up, and they had something where they could activate more power because they were actually, yep. like, you could see him pressing something or trigger or something on the gun, like, giving him the fucking juice. And um, I kept thinking, like, what if you had to engage multiple attackers? Like, it would almost help to, you know, hey, if, like, that guy was getting shocked over there, now I can reload and potentially get a second one. Yep. Yeah, those are all the types of things where we're doing R and D as we speak. That's crazy. Like I, it has to be from a movie. Like I, I'm just imagining like, well, um, a little handheld size dude, droner. No, no. Throw uh, it up and it goes. Did you ever see that awful movie that had Daniel, uh, uh, Daniel Craig in it where he was like a cowboy Yes. and the aliens had those like drones that were like snatching people up and like dragging them away to yes. some like weird mine. Great movie. And it had, uh, it's called Cowboys and Aliens. Yes. <laughs> The ones with the cowboys and the aliens. Uh, it was called Cowboys and Aliens. Uh, I watched that on a movie, uh, on, uh, on a flight, on a, yeah, like the, like the movie on a plane. And I was like, and of course it was like, you know, two hours and the movie where the plane flight was like an hour and a half. And then I had to wait for like the next time I'm I flew. Sure you couldn't wait. So yeah. So yeah I, like it took me a year to finally watch the end of the movie. And uh, I, that's what I keep thinking for this. Like little drones to snatch people up and take them away and put but them in suspended the, animation. Uh, the technology where you like look at the memories inside the brain, that's from this Ben Affleck film called Paycheck. I was took me a while to remember the name of the movie, but you remember where he reverse engineers this high technology and then he sits down in this chair and they like delete his memories but then he sacrifices $10 million and leaves all these clues. And he's like, why would I leave $10 million? Mm-hmm. It turned out to be, I don't want to spoil it from this 2004 film, but he stops the nuclear holocaust. Uh, Did, does he have a mustache like you have? Because No. But he misses the Red Sox win the World Series, and it was like a big, the big joke. Uh, never seen that movie, dude. I definitely have seen that. I watched it with you. So... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, man. Do we have idiot. anything else for Rick? Uh, your, your fourth goal we didn't get to, but you talked about activists and being part of this, this movement. Is there anything that people can support or get behind that's in place, whether it's uh, a political action committee or something that your company, Axon, is initiating? Yeah, so I would just say this. Um, look, we live in a polarized world right now, and, and anger sells, and it gets our eyeballs on social media and traditional media. Um, and I think with the whole Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter, you know, we had a lot of sort of angst and anger on these things. And ultimately, that I don't think is constructive to getting to the to a better place, like calling police racist. Like, what does that accomplish other than 
like insulting and, and driving a wedge in. Uh, now, that doesn't mean police are perfect, but ultimately my challenge to activists is you can't just be anti-police. And, and very few you know, are at least openly anti-police, but a lot of times their activities end up that way. Let me give you an example. City of San Francisco shoots and kills a homeless person with a knife. The protests erupt, calling the cops killers, et cetera. The PD, the chief comes out and says, we would really like to get some tasers so we have another tool to deal with this next time it happens. The activists basically take a very hardline approach that, well, if we give you tasers, cops are bad, you're going to abuse people, we can't trust you with them. No, you just need to like basically stop being bad people to just you know give you my perception of it. And then six months later, the same thing happens. And this repeats over and over again. And in that case, the activists are being counterproductive because they're preventing the police from taking a productive action step towards a better future. Had the opposite happen in, in Cincinnati, Cincinnati, Ohio, there were a rash of shootings with white cops and black kids. Uh, and the ACLU of Ohio sued and got a consent decree. And as part of it, the PD worked together with the ACLU, like, hey, what could we do? And one of the technologies they evaluated was the taser weapon. In this case, the ACLU oversaw some of the deployment. And lo and behold, they went several years without a single shooting and dramatic decreases in, in violence. So my, my point is, activists have a great role they can play, but I think they need to choose what they're for, not just what they're against. And you got to come to the table and work with the police on what sorts of real changes because you know, name calling is not going to get us further. And, and ultimately, if you resist everything the police does or the military, similarly, there was a similar story where activists actually shut down a major non-lethal weapons program with the military. And as a result, 15 years later, we don't have any non-lethal weapons in the military. And I think that actually was counterproductive. I think most anti-war activists would prefer a military that can do its job without killing people. And so I'm trying to shift the tone with activists to say, great job raising energy and awareness now let's talk about solutions and not, you know, let this devolve into name calling. Oh, nice. Yeah. Killer. Or non-killer, non-lethal. Man, I, um, uh, it's a uh, pretty insurmountable problem to try to fix, but I guess if you just give people solutions and, and, you know, provide them the best technology you can and at least something other than like, hey, I can either, you know, have you you know, put your hands on the hood and, you know, go along willingly, or I got to shoot you. I mean, like it just, uh, I guess it gives them like another, you know, escalation of force. Um, yeah. is there ever, is, 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 is there a, hard problems, but they're not insurmountable. Right? Is, Nothing's insurmountable. It just takes time and effort. Is there ever a, uh, I mean, has there ever been a situation like where somebody could point and be like, Hey, um, you know, we issue tasers, they use the tasers and the tasers didn't work and we had to go to lethal force. Oh, yeah, that is the biggest single limitation with taser weapons today. Uh, and, and I'll be the first to tell you that. So there has been a lot of focus over the past 10 years on are tasers too dangerous? Have they killed people? And there have been a limited number of those. But by far, their bigger risk is if we get a clothing disconnect or they miss the subject and it escalates to lethal force. And again, that was part of the reason in writing the book was to take those issues head on and say, absolutely, that's why you still need officers. They're still going to go to their gun today. But once we solve the clothing penetration issue, the multiple shot issue, the accuracy issues, we've got to chew away at those and eventually get to where they don't have those failures that end up going to lethal force. So the, yeah, and just to highlight the name of the book, The End of Killing, Rick Smith, 
Rick, man, thanks for taking the time to chat with us. I hope uh, we held up our end of the bargain. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this has been the most fun us. I've had in a long time in an interview. It's been great. Oh, okay, well, that's oh. good to hear. Hey, man, where are you? Uh, where are you look, like dialing in from? What's what's in the background there? Oh, it's Batman's oh, cave. Uh, this is actually the library in my house. Oh, I was going to say Wayne Manor. Wow, that's a pretty cool room, man. So, <laughs> I got to tell you, like, like this Manor is room. this is the smallest room in Wayne Manor. Don't worry, I got a whole Batman way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that cave's downstairs. You know? Where uh, uh, where do you live? I live in Scottsdale, Arizona. Oh, oh. nice. Cool. Tex, mm-hmm. you, that's, that's where you're heading tomorrow, huh? That, that is correct. Yeah, our uh, our doctor buddy, Tom Inkledon's, uh off of Indian Bend Road out there. So, if you guys go. are ever out this way, uh, hit me up. We can arrange a taser demo. On Dude, crap. Days. I'm going there tomorrow. Yeah, you're getting tased. Uh, uh, you have to. If I call you, I, I you know, I'd like to come over and have a nice bourbon over in your uh, in your library. You can tase Tex, and we can probably just sit around we and laugh can, at it. We can oh do my, that, too. Should, no, should I, I, I <laughs> hang out with you guys? It'd be fun. Should I do Where's, this? So, I think so. Where, uh, um, where would you recommend a nice place to eat? Oh, I, 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 I was going to say, uh, if I could request, I would like to see you either get shot in the prostate. <laughs> and... The eyeball. Yeah, I've never I, seen that one. That would take some effort. Well, <laughs> I was thinking like we could like if if you kind of like had him laying on the side, kind of scissored open, we could like catch him in the prostate, see what happens with that one, and then I was thinking like through the nostril, like that nose ring you had in college. <laughs> yeah, complete the circuit. Yeah, complete the circuit. So nose, <laughs> prostate. I have to support this. I, I think we need to do it in the interest of medical science. <laughs> this is your dream. Yeah. Well, it is now. I'll see you tomorrow. See, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, you're right. Oh, I'm, man. I'm here for my prostate shot. <laughs> and I guess, well, how about if uh, folks want to find you online, Rick, or or look up any of the, the uh, stuff? The best you're place to do is just endofkilling.com mm-hmm. or on Twitter, hashtag endofkilling. Okay, cool. Awesome. Man, I, I was kind of hoping for like a real like cool uh, like uh, handle, like, uh, you know, Big Papa Shock or something. Yeah, a shocker. <laughs> yeah, shocker. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's gonna be like the bro model, you know. <laughs> well, oh, don't tease me, bro. Yeah, that's is, another. Uh, yeah, that was, <laughs> is there like a civilian model that maybe we could get for the office? Like when people are fucking around, they there, just get there tased. There is. There is. Uh, send me an email afterwards to just rickatxon dot com. I'll happy to hook you guys up. Oh shit! Oh, oh fuck! <laughs> Actually, In- wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's a bad idea. No, 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 uh, no. We won't tase each other. We'll tase the intern. Yeah, that's his job. Be like, all right, time, yeah. time, time for your tasing. <laughs> <laughs> Just make him run. And, oh, oh, God, that'd be hilarious. Can I tase my kids? No. I can, though. Yeah, no, you, you can do it. <laughs> they deserve it. All right, Rick, thanks for your time, man. Yeah, thank you. I know you got more interviews. Um, we'll, see, we'll see you in Austin, guys. Yeah, Sounds great. Austin. Thank you. Thank you. Drop okay, right. on, drop on, drop on. Drop on, drop on, drop on. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can learn more about Rick's book, End of Killing, by heading to his website, axonrick.com, or by doing a simple Amazon search. Rick is also active on Twitter. Follow him at axonrick. Until next time, bye!